0: During the 112 years the building stood, the Birkdale Palace Hotel gained a reputation as the most haunted hotel in Britain. The 200-foot-long building opened its doors in 1866. It was in Southport, Merseyside, along the northwest coast of Lancashire. And right from the very beginning, there were rumors the Grand Hotel was cursed. One story claims that the hotel was built facing the wrong direction, which drove the architect, William Mangle, into a deep depression. The hotel's opulent front doors and windows were meant to be facing the west toward the sea. But instead, for some unknown reason, the construction crews built it facing east. So the story goes, William threw himself off the building's roof just days before its grand opening although some versions claim it was actually Mangal's younger brother who took his own life that day. Then on December 9th, 1886, tragedy once again crossed the hotel's threshold. That was when a lifeboat disaster occurred just offshore. The hotel was used as a temporary mortuary for the bodies of 14 lifeboatmen, who drowned after venturing out in a storm to rescue another ship that had run aground. Despite these terrible events and the inevitable ghost stories that followed, the Berkdale Palace did see several years of commercial success as tourists began flocking to the area. By 1939, the hotel had introduced a number of touristy activities including tennis, billiards, croquet, ballroom dancing, and evening concerts. For several decades, the hotel's 1,000 rooms were often booked to capacity. A number of celebrities, including Frank Sinatra and Clark Gable, stayed there. The Beatles even performed there once in 1962. During the Second World War, the hotel was taken over by the Red Cross and turned into a temporary rehabilitation center for U.S. airmen. It was one of the largest such facilities in the United Kingdom, with more than 15,000 servicemen recuperating from injuries on average. But after the war, hotel staff began to report a number of strange occurrences. During the 1950s, a receptionist began reporting an eerie sensation of being watched wherever she went. She grew so paranoid that she eventually refused to venture anywhere throughout the building, or even take the lift by herself. In 1958, records indicated that 17 guests had died inside the hotel, four of whom all stayed in the very same room. Room 287 In 1961, a particularly horrific death occurred when a six-year-old girl named Amanda Jane Graham was raped and murdered. The perpetrator, Alan Victor Wills, worked as a hotel porter, and he tried to get away with his crime by hiding the little girl's body underneath his bed. Other stories of deaths inside the hotel are more difficult to verify, like the one that claims two sisters carried out a suicide pact in their room. By the late 1960s guest bookings dwindled spurred on by all the rumors claiming the hotel was haunted finally in 1967 the then hotel owners Hedden hotels allowed the building to go into liquidation at the time the hotel shut its doors for good there were only two guests the company controller's wife and an elderly permanent resident oddly there are no records indicating that the elderly guest ever checked out. A film studio actually shot a horror movie on the premises in 1968 titled The Haunted House of Horror. The film's producer, Tony Tenser, made a last-ditch effort to save the hotel by trying to buy it with the Southport Council, with plans to turn the structure into a film studio. But the council ultimately rejected the idea. After that, plans were drawn up to demolish the building, And that's when things get really freaky. A demolition team arrived in 1969. Joss Smith led a 10-man team of demolition workers. They planned on sleeping inside the building to save time while they worked, but after only a month, the men were so terrified of the place, they moved out and from then on refused to work at night. Early on, the crew began reporting hearing the sounds of eerie voices echoing throughout the halls, in parts of the hotel where no one should have been. Others reported finding themselves inexplicably locked in their hotel rooms in the middle of the night and unable to get out. Then came the day when the work crew went to tear out the old Victorian-style lift. There had long been the legend around the hotel that the ghost of the hotel's architect, William Mangle who supposedly committed suicide by jumping from the roof, liked to ride the lift up and down throughout the night. When the work crew began working on the lift, it began to move up and down between floors, all on its own, with its gates opening and closing, and the indicator lights flashing. What was even more difficult to explain was when the lift continued to move on its own, even after Smith cut the power to the lift, and even removed the hand crank that controlled its movements. One of the workmen, Frank Woolley, reported that one night, nine members of the crew entered the foyer, when the lift door slammed shut, and it shot up to the second floor without anyone getting near it. Then, after the men finally cut the giant lift from its cables, it should have dropped uncontrollably, but then the lift refused to budge. The workmen hammered away at it for 25 minutes until the four-ton box suddenly came crashing down from the third floor to bury itself four feet into the basement floor. Those weren't the only inexplicable events that occurred while they were demolishing the hotel, either. Some workers reported hearing the click-clack sound of stiletto heels echoing through the halls. On another occasion, some of the men reported hearing the voices of a man and woman arguing from the reception area. This, despite the fact that the area had been restricted from anyone entering because of demolition dangers. On yet another occasion, the local police received a frantic phone call from a woman claiming she was locked in her room and couldn't get out. However, when the police arrived on the scene, they learned all the phone lines had been cut months earlier, and were no longer working. Now, these all sound like the makings for a pretty good horror movie, but keep in mind, These events were all reported in a number of British newspapers, including the Daily Mail and the Manchester Evening News. In May 1969, newspapers reported an act of vandalism that occurred on the demolition site in the middle of the night. Over 200 heavy antique doors were neatly stacked and ready for sale when the work crew called it quits for the evening. But when they returned the following morning, all 200 doors were thrown over a balcony and smashed. Several windows were also broken, along with a number of iron balustrades and other large antiques. The tales of hauntings didn't even end after the building was completely demolished. A residential neighborhood was built on the land where the hotel used to stand. One story claimed that in the 1990s a family fled their home, leaving all their possessions behind. Eyewitness reports say it appears the family fled suddenly in the middle of what they were doing, with food being half-cooked, and even a can opener still attached to a can. In 2011, another incident occurred at the same location, causing that family to flee the property as well. On that occasion, the homeowner reported some unknown force had begun sweeping through the home every evening. Something invisible, that was strong enough to knock their four-year-old child off her feet. You can find stories of hauntings on every continent on Earth, but there's a particular variety of haunting where it's believed the spirits have the ability to actually create loud noises or move physical objects. During the 1920s, a word became popularized for this type of spirit. It was a name taken from the German words meaning noisy spirit. That word, of course, is poltergeist. During the years leading up to World War II, there was a paranormal researcher in England named Nandor Fodor, who investigated the poltergeist haunting of a seemingly average housewife named Alma Fielding. This experience helped shape a new theory for the paranormal investigator, one in which he claimed to have solved the mystery of the poltergeist forever. I'm Nate Hale, and despite what Ghostbusters may tell us, I'm a little afraid of ghosts. And this is The Conspirators. The strange events that occurred all appeared to begin on Sunday, February 13, 1938, in the Thornton Heath suburb, just south of London. That was when Alma Fielding, a 34-year-old housewife, began suffering from sharp pains in her pelvis while she was out visiting some friends in the neighborhood. Alma had suffered from kidney ailments ever since she was a little girl, and she went on that day sweating and shaking. She went straight to bed where she remained for the next several days. Her husband Leslie joined her for much of that time. Les was feeling poorly himself with his gums bleeding heavily after having his teeth pulled out to make way for new dentures. Outside, winter storms tore through the neighborhood bringing howling winds and frosted over windows. But as the storms died down, Alma noticed something odd. A six-fingered handprint appeared on the mirror just above the bedroom fireplace. At the time, Alma wondered if perhaps her fever was causing her to hallucinate. But that was only the beginning of all the supernatural activity. It was right around midnight on Friday when she and Les were awoken by the sound of glass breaking in the dark. Alma flipped on the bedroom lamp and she and her husband were surprised to see a broken tumbler on the floor. This was a glass that normally would have been sitting on the nightstand alongside Les's side of the bed. Then suddenly, another glass came flying through the air and smashed into bits against the wall. Alma and Les lay there frozen as they waited to see what happened next. After a few minutes, Alma tried switching off the lamp only for a cold wind to come blasting through the room that flipped up the covers. Les told her to turn the light back on, but nothing happened when she hit the switch. Alma cried out for help, and their 16-year-old son, Donald, came rushing in from his bedroom, along with their lodger, George Saunders. But as soon as Don opened the bedroom door, he had to dodge a flying pot of face cream that narrowly missed striking him in the head. George Saunders had been renting a room from the fieldings after going through a bitter divorce. As soon as he edged his way into the bedroom, he was pelted with two coins that came flying through the air. Don couldn't see, so he hurried downstairs to get a book of matches to light his way through the darkened room. But when he made his way to the lamp that stood on his mother's bedside table, he was surprised to see the bulb was missing from the socket. They found it a few moments later, lying on a chair off to one side of the room. It was still hot to the touch. After about a half hour, the peculiar events appeared to settle down, so everyone decided to go back to sleep. But the following morning, when Alma felt well enough to head downstairs, an egg smashed against a wall as soon as she entered the kitchen. This was followed immediately by a saucer that snapped in half. The fieldings didn't know what to do. This didn't exactly seem like a matter for the police. So instead, she phoned the offices of the Sunday Pictorial, who had been recently been running a series of stories on supernatural events. The newspaper had issued a request asking for anyone to report their paranormal encounters. Alma told them what was happening and begged for them to send someone immediately. The Sunday Pictorial sent a couple of reporters to Thornton Heath. The men later reported seeing an egg fly down a corridor, only to land a yard from their feet. As Alma led them inside, a pink china dog fell off a shelf to the floor. Then a can opener came hurtling through the air toward them. A teacup and saucer lifted right out of Alma's hands, then shattered in midair. Alma screamed as a second saucer exploded in her hands, slicing open her thumb. The reporters also said while they were there, a wine glass shattered inside a locked cabinet. An egg sailed through the air and smashed into a sideboard. Then a lump of coal lifted up out of the grate and smacked into a wall just inches from the head of one of the reporters. The reporters went outside and found a purported clairvoyant hanging out among the crowd of onlookers who went by the name of Professor Morrison. They led him into the home, and the man warned them all that he sensed Alma was at the center of some powerful supernatural activity. He said he could sense that she was a strong carrier of ectoplasm, a filmy substance spiritualist claim could emanate from the spirit realm. He also warned Alma and Les that their son was in danger. Soon after that, Don moved out of the house for his own safety. The Sunday Pictorial ran a front-page story about the bizarre occurrences in the Fielding home in Thornton Heath, right alongside another article featuring a huge photograph of Adolf Hitler, who is currently gearing up to invade Austria. War and the rise of spiritualism often coincided with one another. The spiritualist movement really took off in the United States following the Civil War, after thousands of grieving families began searching for ways to contact their deceased loved ones in the great beyond. Likewise, spiritualism saw another resurgence in popularity in the years following the First World War for much the same reasons. During both wars, many soldiers returned with stories of seeing angels on the battlefield, and of having prophetic dreams that saved them from certain death. But over the next couple decades following the First World War, the belief in spiritualism, seances, and psychic mediums remained strong in England. One individual who had gotten involved in the study of what many spiritualists preferred to call the supernormal, rather than supernatural, was a Jewish-Hungarian man named Nandor Fodor. He was born Nandor Friedlander, although he would change his last name after moving away from his home country. He began his career earning a doctorate in law from the Royal Hungarian University of Science in Budapest, before moving to New York and working as a journalist. Bodor had a keen analytical mind, but at the same time he had also taken an avid interest in the supernatural ever since he was young. When Dandor was a boy, he attended his grandfather's funeral and was baffled by the men speaking in Hebrew near the body. This led him to want to learn more about what they were saying, which in turn led him to learning about the Hebrew Kabbalah and other mystical practices. Growing up, Fodor also developed a strong interest in psychiatry and the workings of the human mind. In 1926, he interviewed one of his personal idols, Sigmund Freud, and he spent the remainder of his life as a devoted follower of Freud's psychoanalytic view of human nature. In 1927, Fodor consulted a medium in order to contact his dead father. Fodor came away from the experience highly impressed. Although later on, that same medium would be criticized publicly for fraud. Something Fodor himself would be forced to concede. In 1928, Fodor went to work for a British newspaper company. Where by day he worked as a well-paid reporter and by night he continued to indulge his interest in the supernormal. But the pull of that world was too great for Fodor. He eventually quit his newspaper job and in 1934 went on to become the editor of the oldest spiritualist magazine in England, The Light. He later went on to become the only paid employee and primary investigator for the International Institute for Psychical Research. This was a relatively new organization of paranormal researchers that had grown up out of the ashes of an even older spiritualist society. Despite undergoing a huge drop in pay at the Institute, Fodor loved his job. He got to live his dream of hunting for ghosts every day. But along the way, Fodor became something of a pariah in the spiritualist community after he gained a reputation as being far too skeptical. Fodor insisted that he was a true believer, arguing that he investigated several supernormal events that were not easily explained. Although throughout his investigations, he did also uncover a large number of more earthly explanations for many reported hauntings, and even outed a number of purported psychic mediums as frauds out to con gullible people out of their money. After the best-selling weekly Psychic News accused Fodor of being cynical toward the supernatural and far too unkind to mediums, Fodor sued them for libel. So when Nandor Fodor caught wind of the strange events occurring in Thornton Heath, He was at a point in his career where he was desperate to repair his damaged reputation. Which meant he also really needed the opportunity to encounter some real ghosts. As luck would have it, Fodor couldn't make it to the Fielding's home on the day he was given their address on Beverstone Road. So he instead sent an assistant in his place, a 25-year-old film technician named Lawrence Evans. Laurie Evans was an eager young investigator for the Institute and he reported back to Fodor the following day after his visit that this was one of the most remarkable poltergeist hauntings he'd ever witnessed. In the fielding's living room, he saw a wine glass lift up from Alma's hand and shatter in midair before falling to the wood floor. Then a second glass did the same, followed by a third that struck a light fixture in the ceiling. Alma was a nervous wreck the whole time Lori was there. He told Fodor that he took the woman's pulse and her heart was racing. Upstairs, the fielding showed him a wardrobe that the poltergeist had tipped over onto Don's bed. Luckily, Don had already moved out by that point, or else he could have been seriously injured. Lori spotted a broken white china cat lying between two vases in one corner of the boy's room. A few minutes later, he was back downstairs when he heard another crash. This time, he returned to find a blue vase lying by the grandfather clock at the foot of the stairs. He ran back upstairs only to discover that one of the vases he'd just seen in Don's room just minutes before was now missing. Laurie insisted there was no way anyone could have snuck the vase out of the room, since all the occupants of the house were within sight of him at all times. Nandor Fodor excitedly arrived at the house on Beverston Road the following morning. He handed last three eggs and three tumblers at the front door, telling him he brought them along in case the ghost might be interested in breaking them. It was clear to Fodor that Les and Alma hadn't been sleeping. Alma visibly winced every time another crash went off in the house. While Nandor sat there talking to her, he heard a loud crash himself. When he went to investigate, he found a broken alarm clock on the bedroom floor, along with a fresh dent in the wall. Alma told him the clock normally sat on her bedside table. Besides the clock, Fodor witnessed several other unexplainable events that day. He later wrote that during that initial meeting with the Fieldings, he personally witnessed a number of glasses crashing against the walls and even a saucer rising up in the air, then splitting in two. Early on, Fodor began to suspect that Alma was the center of the paranormal activity going on in her home. He asked Alma if she believed she was psychic. She told him she didn't know if she was but she went on to tell him about several strange events throughout her life. She said that she recalled her mother having China break in her hands as well. Her mother also told her how she'd sometimes feel phantom hands touching her. Alma told Fodor that when she was young she wanted to be a circus performer and even studied with her uncle to learn tightrope walking and the trapeze. But she'd also been a sickly child for much of her early life. She'd suffered a number of kidney ailments throughout her life, A bad accident on a bicycle that occurred when she was a teenager ended her show business career before it began. She married Les Fielding in 1921. It was a shotgun wedding as she was already three months pregnant at the time. Les had dropped out of school at age 14 to become an apprentice to his father's painting business. Les had gone on to start a fairly successful painting business of his own. He fought in the First World War and returned from the fighting with some shrapnel from a hand grenade still embedded inside him. Alma also told Fodor that despite not knowing if she was psychic, she still occasionally had seemingly prophetic dreams. Like the time she dreamed her son Don was in danger on the same day he had a bicycle accident. For some time, Fodor had been forming a theory that many poltergeist hauntings could actually be attributed to latent psychokinesis the psychic ability to move objects with one's own mind. After meeting Alma, he became even more convinced that this was the case. He invited Alma to visit the offices of the Institute for Psychical Research in the London District of South Kensington, so that they could continue to study her abilities under more controlled conditions. This episode is brought to you by Surfshark. The internet is getting more dangerous by the second. Hackers have more ways to target you. Trackers are following your every move, and malware is hiding all over the web. Luckily, there's a solution. You can get a VPN. It will hide your real location, making you difficult to identify and target. But privacy and security are not all that Surfshark has to offer. If you use a VPN, you will forget about geo-restrictions. You'll be able to access everything from news sources to social media apps that are unavailable to you because of your location just change your virtual location and access all the entertainment you want safely and securely. And you can try out Surfshark completely risk-free because they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. Get Surfshark VPN at surfshark.deals/tc. Use the promo code TC for 83% off and 3 extra months free. That's surfshark.deals/tc. And now, back to the show. On Friday, February 28th, Fodor and several other members of the Institute conducted their first seance with Alma. To prepare, Fodor had set out several cups and saucers on chairs, along with a few glass tumblers on a table, two of which contained a rattle and a flashbulb. They had a camera set up ready to photograph anything unusual that might occur. During the seance, the table bumped up several times. This was something Fodor and the others had witnessed before in other seances. But during this session, Alma appeared to do something unique that surprised everyone. She appeared to apparate small objects out of thin air. In this case, a hairbrush and a tin of Carter's little liver pills appeared seemingly out of nowhere. These were both objects Alma swore had been in her bedroom back home. Witnesses claimed that Alma's hands were holding a cup and saucer and remained within full view of everyone at all times. Later on, Fodor said he and some of the others witnessed the very same cup and saucer rise up in the air, then burst into pieces like it had been hit with an invisible hammer. After Alma returned home, Fodor went with her, along with Dr. Gerald Wills, a retired anesthetist at St. Thomas's Hospital and current institute member. At the time, Alma was wearing a large coat. Wills decided to stage an experiment by placing several small objects in Alma's pockets to see if she could make them disappear. Several of these objects were later found in other rooms even though Alma never left their sight. But as time wore on and Nandor Fodor learned more about Alma, he began to worry if he was wildly off base about her psychic abilities. She told him another strange story about how in 1929 she had a two week period where she mysteriously lost her eyesight. She claimed that, even though she couldn't see, she was still able to navigate the world perfectly through some strange sixth sense. Alma managed to hide her condition until one day when Les took her to the movies and he noticed she wasn't watching the screen. Les took her to an eye doctor who prescribed some drops. After a few more days, her eyesight returned. She also told Fodor stories about when she was a little girl, how she would sometimes awaken in the middle of the night only to be completely paralyzed. She recalled being terrified of a mysterious, long-faced man who would climb out of her wardrobe at night. Fodor could explain both these stories away as cases of hysterical blindness and sleep paralysis. But there was another story she told him that was more difficult to explain. Alma told him that she had once had a vivid dream in which her deceased father appeared to her and drew the shape of a cross across her left breast. When she went to the doctor later on, The doctor diagnosed a cancerous tumor right where her father drew the cross. This resulted in Alma having a mastectomy. Alma Fielding was a real conundrum to Nandor Fodor. On the one hand, he had witnessed several unexplained events in her presence with his very own eyes. On the other hand, he couldn't shake the suspicion that perhaps this was just a bored housewife who at one time in her life desired to be an entertainer and was now faking everything for excitement. The Institute signed Alma to a contract where she would come to the offices regularly for more seances and study. During some of these seances, two female members would strip-search Alma and make her dress in a white jumpsuit in order to avoid trickery. Alma told Fodor on another occasion how she had gone shopping with a friend and that they had looked at some jewelry in one shop. Alma said she tried in a ring, then handed it back to the clerk. But she was surprised that after leaving the shop, the ring magically appeared on her finger once again. This led Alma and her friend to see if they could repeat this miracle. They went to a different shop where Alma tried on a pearl necklace and gave it back to the clerk. But once again, after stepping out of the shop, Alma was astonished to find the pearl necklace back around her neck. Fodor decided to try his own experiment with Alma. They went to a Woolworth store where Fodor handed Alma a sealed film canister and told her it would be interesting if a ring were to appear inside. Fodor watched Alma try on a ring at the jewelry counter and hand it back. But once they were outside, they heard a rattle from inside the canister. The ring was inside. This experience was alarming to Fodor. Either Alma or the poltergeist that haunted her was a gifted shoplifter. Les was fairly successful at his business, so Alma didn't need to steal any of the jewelry. The Institute continued searching Alma before each seance, and yet small objects including coins, pins, and nuts all still magically appeared. There came a point where Fodor decided to take a back seat during the seances and instead handed the reins to Countess Nora Weidenbrook, an Austrian author who had been a member of the Institute's consul since its inception. During these sessions, Weidenbrook took a more relaxed approach to the seances. And perhaps coincidentally or not, the objects Alma operated out of thin air grew larger and even more shocking. One day, Alma showed up for one of her weekly seances carrying a small white mouse. She told them that the tiny creature had magically appeared on her shoulder after she fell asleep on the train ride over. Bodor was convinced she had bought the mouse somewhere along the line and was just making up a story. This was only compounded in his mind even further the day Alma seemed to make a live bird appear during a seance. When Alma was searched, it was revealed she had a bandage wrapped around her leg underneath her skirt. She explained this away, saying she had injured her leg earlier that day. But Fodor was convinced Alma used the bandage to smuggle in the bird. Despite Fodor's skepticism, Alma continued to apparate objects at each seance, including goldfish, a turtle, several dead beetles and even some antique shards of pottery and antique jewelry. Fodor tried to trace Alma's steps and track down the shops where she might have purchased these items, but was unable to find any shopkeepers who could confirm his suspicions. Alma also began claiming that during these sessions she was able to channel the spirit of a dead Persian artist named Bremba, who owned a pet tiger. Although Bremba insisted the tiger was quite friendly, Alma repeatedly exhibited strange scratches all over her body. Back home, reports of peculiar activity surrounding Alma persisted. One night, the fielding's lodger, George, woke up screaming in the middle of the night. He swore he awoke to see Alma standing over him with a disturbing grin on her face. But Les insisted this couldn't be because Alma was sleeping right next to him in their bedroom. On another occasion, Alma related the story to Nandor that she had gone to the movies one night with Les, only to fall asleep. She dreamed she went to the Institute and she could tell that a meeting was taking place because of all the cars parked outside. She was surprised that Dr. Wills wasn't in attendance, since his car was nowhere to be seen. Alma said she also recalled catching the eye of a chauffeur standing nearby. It turns out there really was a meeting of the Institute's council, the evening Alma claimed. What's even more curious is that Dr. Wills was not in attendance because his car broke down. Fodor even managed to track down a chauffeur who was waiting outside at the time, and he recalled seeing a woman who sounded a lot like Alma Fielding when he described her. Several Institute members took these events as proof that Alma possessed the power of astral projection, the power to send one's spirit out of their body into the physical realm. Fodor decided to perform an experiment of his own to see if this was possible. He took Alma to the movies to see if she could repeat the experience she had with Les, While there, a bunch of roses appeared to apparate out of nowhere. But Fodor believed Alma brought them with her when she excused herself at one point to head to a shop across the street where she said she needed to purchase some sanitary napkins for her period. Prior to them entering the theater, Fodor had searched Alma and confirmed she didn't have any roses on her at the time. But he did count the money in her purse, and when he questioned her later on how much money she had left after leaving the shop, He calculated it was exactly the right amount to purchase a movie ticket and the cost of a bunch of roses. By April, Fodor finally decided he should become more actively involved in the daily seances once again. At the same time, Les was becoming increasingly agitated about the amount of time Alma was spending at the Institute. They managed to calm him down, though, after they doubled Alma's pay to four pounds a week. When Fodor rejoined the seances, he began suggesting that Alma undergo an x-ray before each session. He was suspicious that she might be smuggling small objects into the room in her vagina and retrieving them when she went to the bathroom. At first, Alma protested about the x rays, claiming the machine scared her. But she finally relented. The x ray technicians messed up their first set of images, but on their second attempt, they managed to capture the picture of what appeared to be a pin and a small heart shaped object strapped to Alma's thigh. During that seance, Alma made both a pin and a heart-shaped locket appear out of thin air. From there, Alma's claims became even more outrageous. She began insinuating that a vampire was coming into her room at night. She said she saw a bat flying around her bedroom in the dark one evening, and even woke up to a set of bite marks on her neck. Fodor was becoming increasingly convinced that Alma's behavior could all be explained away by some repressed sexual trauma she'd experienced as a child. This might also explain her terrified reports of encountering a long-faced man in her room at night. This idea of repressed sexual trauma was in keeping with Sigmund Freud's theories about the workings of the human mind. Bodor arranged one more experiment to attempt to see if he could learn any more about Alma. He invited a psychic medium friend named Eileen Garrett to the Fielding's home to conduct a cleansing seance with her. Garrett had her own spirit guide she could channel although she freely admitted that she couldn't be certain if this spirit was actually real, or if it was just a figment of her imagination. This seance turned into something more like a therapy session between Les and Alma than an actual supernatural cleansing. But by now, the Institute was getting fed up with the increasing evidence that Alma had been fooling them the entire time. Vodor suggested they could try injecting her with True Serum to attempt to get her to confess, but the Institute's council instead cut their contract with Alma and soon fired Fodor as well. They also insisted that if Fodor ever planned on publishing his findings, that he leave their true names out of it. Fodor did publish his findings in two scientific papers about poltergeists and occultism. In both these papers and later books, he asserted his belief that poltergeist activity was real, although it wasn't ghosts that were causing it. Rather, it was the result of suppressed psychic abilities in individuals that came out during periods of extreme stress or repressed trauma. After leaving the Institute, Fodor returned to America where he wrote up his findings and mailed them to his idol, Sigmund Freud, who was living in exile during the war. Freud wrote a letter back warmly accepting Fodor's findings and suggesting that he should continue his research. Although Fodor was bitter about the way he had been treated by the International Institute for Psychical Research, he felt vindicated by Freud's letter. He continued to write books until his death in 1964, including one published in 1958, in which he detailed his experiences with Alma Fielding called On the Trail of the Poltergeist. During World War II, Les Fielding joined the Home Guard while Alma volunteered as a nurse, In the years that followed, the couple moved to a rural village in Devon, where they lived for several more years in a quiet existence in a tiny house with no electricity. Occasionally, Alma would host seances, although on one occasion one of her neighbors caught her hiding a tiny bell up her sleeve that still had the tag from Woolworth's on it. And our photo remained certain that all of Alma Fielding's obvious trickery And even the supernatural events he couldn't so readily explain were all tied to a deeply repressed psychological trauma Alma experienced, probably a sexual assault as a child. Although Fodor never found proof of any such trauma in Alma's childhood, he did learn of some other traumatic events in her life. In 1926, Alma's infant son Lori died of tubercular meningitis. During that same year, Alma contracted anthrax poisoning after her gums were infected by the animal bristles from a cheap toothbrush. This caused her gums to turn black and forced her to have her teeth removed. This was soon followed by what sounded to Fodor like a complete psychotic break, where Alma actually picked up a butcher knife and attempted to stab less. Things more or less settled down for 12 more years after that, but Nandor Fodor believed Alma still had a lot of turbulent emotions, that she kept hidden beneath a calm veneer. Then in 1938, as the threat of another world war grew increasingly likely, along with all the mundane stresses of life as a suburban housewife grew too much for Alma, Fodor felt this all culminated in the poltergeist attack on the home in Beverstone Road. Whether there was ever any real paranormal activity, or if it was all just an elaborate series of hoaxes perpetrated by Alma, it's impossible to tell. But if The Haunting of Alma Fielding has taught us anything, it's this. Perhaps the only things that are truly haunted in this world are ourselves. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to read an excellent book on the subject of Nandor Fodor's poltergeist hunt, then I highly recommend The Haunting of Alma Fielding by Kate Summerscale. I want to let everyone know that this week I also put out a new Patreon episode about another famous case that Nandor Fodor once investigated that's even weirder than the story of Alma Fielding. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to a huge library of bonus mini-episodes they are just like the full episodes, only fun-size. Patrons also get access to all sorts of other Nipstie bonuses, including early episode releases, conspirators' cards, stickers, magnets, and much, much more. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can support the show that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Then tell your friends and family about our show, too, and ask them to leave a five-star rating as well. Each one of your ratings and reviews really does help spread the good word and boost us up in Apple's charts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us in most of the other places you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher. You can also listen to our entire back catalog of shows on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Elsewhere, check us out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hit us up and let us know how we're doing. Send me episode suggestions or just say hi. I like it when you say hi. You can even email me at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.